Hi, this is Nick from the St. Paul Filmcast. Uh, this episode, we're going to be talking about the 1959 movie Ben-Hur, winner of 11 Academy Awards. Released in November 1959, finished filming in January 1959. I want to thank my guest, Billy Dees, from the Billy Dees podcast to come on and talk about that. And we'll have that after these messages. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan L. Terry, screenwriting lecturer, film critic, and yeah, even figure skater. Known by my monikers Podstitute and Podhopper, you may have heard me on some of your favorite shows such as Mike, Mike, and Oscar, One Movie Punch, In Session Film, Blockbuster Mentality, Movie Geek and Proud, Just So You Know, and more. And I would love to sit down with you on your show. Whether we are talking about my area of expertise, the American horror film, chatting about what we are watching on TV, or diving deep into a classic or underrated film, I would love to make time for you. You can follow me on Twitter at RLTerry1 and on my blog at RLTerryRealView.com. That's real with two E's. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to connecting with you soon. Hey, we are uh, back on the St. Paul Filmcast, and today my guest is Billy Dees. We're going to be talking and discussing a movie that just turned 60. Well, it didn't really turn 60 yet. It came out in November 1959, but it's, it definitely came out uh, of the this year, so it's 60 years old, Ben-Hur. Um, hello, Billy. Hey, how are you doing, Nick? Yeah, thanks for coming on my show. I, I know I'm, I was a previous guest on your show, so yeah. if, anybody's, if anybody's interested and um, want to stop this tape and listen to the episode that I was on or listen to your podcast. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, it, it was great having you on. Uh, still get good comments about that episode, and I'm great. thrilled to be on your show. Absolutely thrilled. So this is, I, I might actually sound like I know what I'm talking about. So, um <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll uh, before, we, before we continue, and if anybody doesn't, any, any listeners don't are not familiar with you or your works, um, tell us a little bit of how they can reach your show and what your show is about. Before we continue talking about Ben Hur, sure, uh, you can follow me real easily. Find me real easily on a Twitter at Billy D's. That's D E E S. Most of my uh, contact information, uh, the things that I'm doing, are all in the bio. Um, my professional website link is there. The podcast is uh, a commentary and an interview based program. We're not ba- uh, based on any theme or anything. It's not like I'll only talk about one thing, but uh, we cover uh, a gamut of things. And um, I work in uh, media as well. My day job, as it were, I work for a nonprofit. I work in the marketing department of a, of a nonprofit here in Ohio. So I keep busy. And that's pretty much my story. All right, great. And they can find your podcast on all the major uh, distributions oh, like yeah. iTunes, yeah. Stitcher, and all that stuff. Yeah, Billy D's is the is the key thing. You can find me on iTunes and all of them. Yeah, pretty much. All right, thank you. And, of course, we're going to talk about the movie that uh, is 60 years old, uh, yes. Ben-Hur. And if you want to, as you guess, you want to start on a simple variety, uh, just, we're kind of just going to loosely structure this. Um, what, kinda, kinda, what do you want to talk about initially first about the movie? Well, in my opinion, um, you really have to start with the lineage of the story because I feel that that's an important part of this movie. Um, The pedigree goes back to, you know, the 19th century. So um, with that being said, it was written by a Civil War general by the name. Um, A Union general, yeah. Yes, General Lou Wallace. Now, he had – this is just a little theory of mine. I could be wrong, but I've always felt that the type of writer who's going to write a landmark novel is probably somebody who has lived life to a certain degree. (laughs) That's why the – yeah, that's why the old cliche about uh, great novelists being under 30 are very rare. You know, it's one thing to understand the passage of time. It's one thing to understand the circle of life. It's one thing to understand changing social mores and all that. But it's another thing to have lived through it. 
And uh, with with somebody like General Lou Wallace, you have somebody who has a very interesting background. I don't know why somebody hasn't you know, done a movie about him <laughs> because um, besides being a Civil War general, which is historically significant in and of and by itself. And like you said, he was uh, a union union general. He was also a, a uh, lawyer. And uh, very interestingly, he became um, one of the people who was on the military commission for the trials at the Lincoln assassination. Oh, he was uh, he was uh, one of the appointees. Yes. Fascinating. Yes. Yes, uh, uh, and that alone, you know, it doesn't stop there. It gets better. For those of you who like uh, the lore of the Old West, um, he was also what was then the territory, the governor of the New Mexico Territory. And um, one of the – if you follow gunfighters and you like stories like the OK Corral and all those kind of stories, he was caught up in uh, a legend. It's become somewhat of a legend uh, with Billy the Kid. And um, he was obviously Billy the Kid was a uh, notorious um, criminal. And uh, make a long story short, it's documented in several films. I believe the Young Guns touched on it a little bit. I'm not sure how accurate it was historically. But um, what ended up happening was Billy the Kid witnessed a murder. And uh, General Lou Wallace uh, struck a deal with him that if he testified, um, that he would be get pardoned. And uh, what ended up happening was I believe the prosecutor at the time wasn't too cool with that. So Billy the Kid ended up escaping, and of course that whole thing with Pat Garrett. You can uh, you know check that out yourself. This is about the movie, but my 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 point is, is this is a guy who's been around. You know he, uh, uh, and and another trial too. If you, just one more Civil War uh, a bit of information here. Sure. Uh, he was also on the commission that tried the commandant of Andersonville. And if you don't have a real good knowledge of the Civil War, that was a notorious Pri- no, notorious the prison, camp. Yeah. prison camp. Yes, in in the South. Um, you know, very much on par with what you might call Auschwitz or someplace like that. It was v- horrid. Okay, so this is a guy that's got uh, you know a, a real versatile background. He's been around. And to my knowledge, he wrote a couple books, but yep. Ben Hur was the one that uh, made him a very wealthy man and his estate, of course. And uh, that's kind of where I find it interesting that that story goes that far back with someone like him. And he isn't someone that you would associate with a religious story, per, per se. Um no, and that's it, one thing. Was, I, if I go mean, ahead. To, mean to interject, yeah, uh, Lou Loss, uh, prior to writing, had no affiliation, religion affiliation. He wasn't um, anti-religion or for religion. Yes. He was kind of a neutral prior to um, writing this story. That's correct. That's what I've heard. Yeah. And um, the, 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 the thing that I would want to talk when we get into the 1959 movie, you know, a lot of times when you, when you talk about a movie that has religious overtones or undertones um you know people will like it strictly because of that it matches their faith or they will automatically dismiss it for the same reason and i try not to do that and the one thing that it's easy to do with ben-hur because the it's very character driven you have the 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 lead character which is judah ben-hur yep and you have his friend uh, masala Yes, And their journey from childhood to adult friends and then to mortal enemies is really what drives the story. And at this point, Jesus is treated in the movie as a holy figure, to be sure, but also another character. He has a significant role in the storyline, and we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. Yeah. But he, he, he this this movie isn't. All about uh, miracles, like you know, behold! It is. It isn't right. one of those. Um, the miracle that happens in this movie is very subtle. You have to wait to the end, and um, from that aspect of it, it's not necessarily a a preachy movie at all. So that's kind of my take on it. 
Yeah, and I, I was just going to bounce off for you because, uh, yes, it's, it's a book. It was published in 1880. Um, yes. Wallace handwritten it. Um, you can actually find the manuscript in the museum where he wrote it. Um, so it's a handwritten in ink, if you can believe that, on yeah. paper. Um, and so 1880 um, – it's actually the full title is Ben Here, A Tale of Christ, which is not what you've discussed recently. It's not really centered around Jesus Christ, but it's actually him as a backdrop. Um, yes. Lou Wallace, uh, it's a heavy book, and it didn't really gain, tr- gain traction to about five years after publication, around mm-hmm. 1885. It was a monster hit, and probably around the turn of century, it was um, very popular. In fact, it's yeah. well-written that people in America in the turn of century had two books in their home, the Bible and Ben-Hur. It's a, yeah. The story is actually a staple of late the around the century of Americana because it's so ingrained into, I think, American culture. Sure. And one of the things that's interesting about the story as well is it seems, as far as I know, the book is still obtainable. It's been in print forever. Yes. The one thing uh, is it's never stopped being in print. Okay. Okay. And uh, what's interesting about it as well is that it seems like the 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 media of the time, whatever was the thing to do, carried the book. For example, in the late 19th century and so on, there were a number of plays that right. depicted the story of Ben Hur, and some of them were very elaborate with live horses on stage and everything else. Yeah, and, and one of the things I, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, no, no, go right. One ahead. of the things that I've learned is actually um, when the play was very popular, this enormous production of a play, um, you would actually, if you were a religious person, you would go to church, even Catholic, Lutheran, Protestant, or whatever. The pastor priest would endorse it and say, "You have to." Really, you have to go see this play. It is part of your religious duty to go see this play. <laughs> wow, that's interesting because being that it is a work of fiction, that uh, obviously it depicts Jesus, but uh, it, that's interesting that that it, that it became that. Um, but to, to to finish up on my point is yep. as as when plays were the way to yep. enjoy acting, uh, when the silent era came in. The uh, movie was, I believe it was done first very early as a one reeler. You're right. I don't know. I don't know much about that one. But of course, the the one that was done in the mid 20s and I've heard estimates vary was around 1925, 1926, around in there somewhere. Is that is that what you have? Yes. In 1925. Yep. Okay. Well, the, and the that, thing is, um, it's, go ahead. I, the, the reason why the discrepancies is because they added different footage later. To coincide with uh, sound, oh, okay. introduction of sound. So the whole production was finished in 1925, but there's added features of sound in extra scenes. So technically, it did con- completely uh, finish in 1926. Right, right. Um, and so with that being the case, that was for its time, for the silent era, that was a major production. And the silent era, the full theme, uh, not not the uh, the one I spoke of earlier, not the one reeler, but the uh, the more intense big production in the mid 1920s. There, 1925, that one is actually responsible for some myths about the 1959 version. A lot of people are under the understanding that a fatality occurred during the filming of the chariot race in the 1959 version, and that did not happen. No, okay, that no, there's yeah. little scuffles and bruises, but n- no injuries. Yes. Yeah. That is correct. And actually, that uh, chariot race, I believe one of the categories for winning the the Academy Awards that it won was for stunt coordination. Uh, But the 1925 version was marred with a couple of of mishaps. And they originally tried to shoot it in Rome, and that's where the fatality occurred. And uh, by bringing it back to the United States, they they actually ended up killing some horses in the process. So it was just a mess. Yeah, in the 1925 version uh, during the chariot race, it's actually in the movie. There is a huge crash where people got injured and horses died, and it's actually in the movie. Wow. That's kind of morbid, isn't it? <laughs> Slightly, yes, yeah. Yes. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up about a chariot race is because sure. obviously during the play, they had to do the chariot race. And one of the ingenious ideas of constructing to put a chariot race on a stage play was to put horses on treadmills, wooden treadmills. Yes. And then they had a huge canvas background that would roll. So like, like the background was moving and then – the treadmills will actually move slide slide scale 
and so yes. Ben Hur's race, horse race, would win. Well, actually, during a Broadway production, the treadmill for Ben Hurst broke and Mesela won. Oh. <laughs> but they, they went along and just acted like it was still Ben Hur winning. Wow. <laughs> That would be very hard to manage once, let alone on a on a regular basis. You know, if the show had a long run, sooner or later, something bound was <laughs> bound right, to go bus. wrong. Um, the interesting thing about the play is they never really showed Jesus. What they did in the in the play version was they actually constructed this huge candle frame box of light. So whenever Jesus was supposed to be in the Ben-Hur, it would project a background of just light being projected onto the stage. Right. That's interesting. And that kind of fits in with uh, the 1959 version that, that we'll talk about here in a minute. Yep. The one the one thing that um, I, I also would want to say about the 1959 version for people that are listening to this. And I don't know if this Ben Hur thing is for me. And you know, it's about Jesus and all this. First of all, like I said, the, it, it's not a soapbox uh, type movie. It's not preaching to you. No. OK, there's, there's nobody on a pulpit telling you, you know, this is just a fictional story, very character driven. And the other thing that I would say, too, is a lot of movies of that era have become antiquated because they relied on special effects of the time. And one of the things I talk about a lot in one of my other lives that I always have going on is uh, (laughs) this is this this is true in music. Um, A lot of times when uh, musicians rely on the technology of the time to help them write a song, it becomes antiquated in that period. For example, in the 1980s, I like the 1980s music, but the synthesizers of that time, the electronic drums of that time instantly label that song as a 1980s tune. Okay. And um, with Ben-Hur – there were some special effects that had to be done. For example, there is a uh, a sea battle sequence. Now, obviously, they couldn't build the Roman fleet. They had to rely on miniatures and things like that. Back yeah, we call them miniatures, so, but they're like four foot long boats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were actually, yeah, they weren't like in somebody's tub. Right. They're not like <laughs> little they're, matchbox cars. These are massive. And, yeah. Yes, and and they did a great job doing that. So with the exceptions of things like that, for the most part, Ben-Hur is shot in live action. And um, they used this camera called the MGM Camera 65, which was a monster. Okay. Yes. Yes. And uh, the idea behind this heavy stock film and and what I was getting at with the music is when someone is riding a horse – and you're shooting them on 70 millimeter stock. Okay. <laughs> it's going to look like somebody riding a horse forever. Okay. And uh, same with music. You know, uh, a piano is always going to sound like a piano. Drums are always going to sound like drums. So it, this movie isn't necessarily uh, grainy or has a lot of weird backgrounds and makeshift things, makeshift sets. That's not the case at all. This was one of the most expensive productions of the time. I mean, at, at this time, it was probably MGM bet everything on it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I would it would be hard to translate what it would cost in today's dollars. I'm sure it was it would be astronomical. Um, the initial oh. budget for it was seven million dollars, which was three times more than an average movie. And then uh-huh. the total cost ended up being ten million dollars. So MGM was, of course, at the time in the late 50s struggling because of yes. new media such as television. Um, people weren't going to the movies as much as known as um, the big epics were very expensive. So they, they pretty much rolled the dice with this one movie to keep afloat. And it was a big hit. Yes. And uh, a lot of the theaters could not accommodate the, uh, you know, the, the heavy stock film. So they actually did do some prints in 35, 35 millimeter. Yeah, that's why sometimes you see it. It looks squished. Yes. Yep. And uh, the MGM camera, um, like they, I believe they called it 65 because they actually used some of the, 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 the real estate on the film for a six track soundtrack. Um, which here again, Ben Hur for the for its time was was well ahead of its time. Yeah, and now it was not configured like the modern day Dolby Digital and some of these other things that we're familiar with today, but it was still multi-track sound, and uh, you had this enormous screen. And like I said, uh, this movie, uh, having been been processed into digital now, and with all the technology that we have, restoring these images was 
came out very well, I'll put it that way, because you had a heavy stock, ex- the best camera technology of the time. Uh, and it just came, the, the, uh, if you have the Blu-ray or even the DVD, it looks fantastic on a screen. I was actually out at CES a number of years ago. Okay. I don't, I don't remember. It's probably about 10 or 15 years ago. Now, th- at this time, this movie's already 50, 55 years old. Okay. And I'm out at, I'm out at CES. Okay. This is the uh, Consumer Electric electronic show in vegas okay all the latest technology there big screens all this stuff and one of the vendors was actually on a loop had the chariot race and you know it was amazing to me that with all that latest technology one of the things they were using to showcase (laughs) was was a a sequence that was shot 50 years half a century (laughs) before and it looked spectacular it really did it looked absolutely spectacular. So, uh, yeah, technically speaking, um, th- this movie holds up very well to the passage of time. That would be another thing that I would say about the movie. Um, one of the aspects, and I'd love to get back to the the whole aspects of the chariot race because it took a almost a year of training just to shoot yes. five minutes of footage or six minutes or whatever of footage. But um, – Yes, uh, so 1959, the MGM uh, went with this um, producer, um, Sam Zimbalis, was yes. an executive producer, and he initially uh, went after William Waller to direct us on the simple thing that William Waller didn't do a movie like this prior. He um, actually was probably the most celebrated director before even doing Ben-Hur. He did Weathering Heights. Yeah. Um, best Days of Our Lives. Um, he did even Best Picture, 1949, The Heiress with Olivier de Havilland. So he had wonderful credibility, and William Waller said yes simply because he wanted to challenge challenge himself to see if he could do a Sesame Mill movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's on that scale. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing outside of this, Billy, is William Waller does um, doesn't do a movie as a big production as a fast pace. He's a very slow perfectionist articulate director um definitely takes his time with stuff like this and it's one of the markers that you see in this movie as well as some other biblical epic movies at the time this one has the right pacing i believe even though it's a little bit long but it has everything could be a picture a painting in this movie there's absolutely no question and i i the first time that i uh saw this movie movie i was very young okay now my dad uh he passed away a number of years ago but uh when i was young um he tried to expose me to the arts and everything and he had an eye for this type of thing as a matter of fact uh when he took me to see jaws in 1975 when we were leaving the theater he said i don't know who directed that but he's going to be big <laughs> so, um and um uh, <laughs> Ben-Hur had been re-released. Now, this had to have been like the early 1970s. I was very young. I was probably maybe seven or eight, something like that. Yeah. And and uh, he pr- kind of prepped me. He said, now, this movie's long. You know, he kind of prepped me. And um, he was a Civil War expert. So he was very familiar with General Lou Wallace and, and, and all these things. He actually uh, worked on a documentary about the Civil War, uh, Battle of Gettysburg specifically. Yeah, so he had, he had a good background with this, and uh, uh, to make a long story short, he took me to what was at the time there was a place here in Ohio called the McKinley Theater. Okay, and it Named after was the president, the president. Yeah. Okay. It, well, where I am from, uh, McKinley's big around here because he was kind of from this area. Yeah, you mentioned right. you're from Ohio, so I was. I was yes, I was yes, Canton, Ohio. Yeah. We're we're famous for the the Professional Football Hall of Fame. We have that here. Yeah. <laughs> and that's probably the extent of our culture, but everybody knows who McKinley is. Everything here is we got McKinley High School, McKinley this and that. Okay. Yeah. Well, anyway, um uh, McKinley Theater had this enormous three, uh, screen, and in in subsequent years, it was divided up into smaller screens. You know, during the 1970s when the multiplexes came in, but okay. dur- during this time, the enormity of the screen um, made an impression on me because of the fact that the chariot race was filmed on heavy stock back in the day when big, big, big screens were the thing. And we really don't have that today. We have some theaters that have some big screens, but this, I couldn't tell you what it, what it measured out to, but it was enormous. Cause like I said, it was divided up into several, <laughs> you know, in later years. And, uh, he was worried that I wouldn't be able to sit through the movie, but I did. 
I sat through it, and it was probably one of my first cinematic experiences. So I, maybe that's another reason why this movie kind of grabbed my attention, um, because it, it made a, an impression on me, just like Jaws did a number of years later. Um, and that's kind of where I kind of have an affection for the movie, because I do have those memories. I had my dad's uh, love of history. It all kind of came together there uh, with the author of the book, and and it, yeah. it, it just comes together, and, it, and, and it's it's very well told. That's probably where the, the other place I would go with this is what we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, I don't I didn't mean to be taking over your show. I hope I'm not talking too much. <laughs> well, you're the guest. Yeah, go ahead. I made some notes, and I figured, well, I might as well talk about this. <laughs> Uh, so, the, the the we were talking about how religion is presented in the movie. Yep. And uh, to, here again, to not to give away the story, but you have two characters starting out as friends, becoming enemies, and the the hero of the movie, the good guy, I guess you would say, uh, but Judah Ben Hur, is sentenced to death, and while he's uh, you know, on his way to row in the uh, in, in the uh, naval ships of the Roman Empire, they they walk the uh, the prisoners through the desert. Yes, and he's 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 dying in the uh, in the desert of thirst, and the instructions uh, given to the soldiers were not to give Ben Hur any water. So they stop at this watering hole and. They're you know, giving the prisoners and the horses water and everything, but they're not giving anything to Judah. And there he is dying of thirst. And this is where I'm not sure how much of this was William Wyler. I'm not sure how much of this was the writers of the screenplay. Yeah. But the temptation of the time in my, I guess, amateurish uh, point of view would be to present Jesus as this glowing uh, holy figure. And Jesus just happens to be in this area, and he walks over to uh, the well, and he gets a, a little uh, thing of water. He comes over, and he starts to give water to uh, Ben-Hur. Now, he, the, it, during this scene, his face is not shown, but it's shot in a way that you know it's Jesus. Okay. Yeah, everybody Everybody says that when you see this movie, you think they've seen Jesus, and then no, you always see the behind him or whatever, yeah? Yes, exactly. And what they did with this scene was they had this soldier run over and say, hey, no water for him. And here again, the temptation of the time would be to show like this power, you know, that Jesus had. But it, it wasn't like that. The, the, the camera stays on the soldier. And yes, I don't know the act. I don't know the actor's name, but he did this very job, very good job of going from aggression. If you watch his face, it's all actor driven. He, he goes from this aggression to being a little uh, mystified, a little confused, and then he kind of goes to almost a little fear, and he just backs away. And Jesus continues to give Ben Hur the uh, the the water, and it's just a, a such a well done scene. And there's two things here. Obviously, there's the symbolism. There's the uh, you know he's getting more than just a drink of water. It's it's it, the symbolism is in, is in um, you know the refreshment of the light of life, um, but it's also a foreshadowing moment because the way this is shot, it doesn't seem to have any significance at the time. But there's also this foreshadowing moment when he's kind of walking away from Jesus, being led away, and he looks back, and you know that 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 moment is going to have significance somewhere later in the story. But then it's almost, you know, and, and it's just done so well from a writing standpoint. Even if you are not captivated by the religious aspects of this, just in terms of, of a story where a seemingly insignificant thing, giving somebody some water, turns out to have an enormous impact on the end of the movie. Um, it's done so well. And that, that's another reason why, even if you're maybe a little put off by the religious aspects of this, I would, I would you know, just put that aside. Consider Jesus a historical figure, and this is a story that could have happened. And uh, from a writing standpoint, I really like that part of it. Yeah, and the, the, the um, you know the, the whole the whole aspect of that action takes place is wonderfully shot. But the actually the build up to it, actually, you see the prisoners, uh, Ben Hur being one of them, being yes. pulled along through the window that Jesus's house actually yes. Jesus is working. You don't know it as 
him at first. You're like, this is just yeah. a regular person that somebody's going through town. And you see it through his perspective, which is fascinating. You see yeah. these how they're treated through Jesus' perspective at first. Yes. And yes, the the aspect of the Roman soldier who has real no physical entanglement with Jesus all of a sudden gives in to him. Yes. Yes, it's a wonderful power play. You see the aggression, I told you not to give and then he's, he's frozen, and this, by looking at him, yes. changes his demeanor. Um, a wonderful reflection of just the power that um, Jesus has yes. wherever he goes. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. It really was fascinating. And then you see Judah Ben-Henry go, well, who who is this person? And yes. throughout the whole movie is the backdrop of Jesus um, getting traction, getting his bearings, getting a following right through the background. And yes. um, I think there's a scene where Judah's passing through and there's people on a mountain and is like, what is going on here? And people are telling him this man is preaching and it's wonderful. You should listen to him. And so yeah. you have this wonderful arc, uh, a subplot, which is the Bible being presented. Yes. Yes. And except, like you said, for very subtle things, when you're looking out the window, uh, you do hear carpentry. You know, you hear carpentry going on, saws and so forth. So there's that little clue to the audience of who this person is. But it's not, you know, just uh, pasted on the screen. (laughs) It it, it would take away from if it did. And I'm sure you were going to talk about it. I think the other thing that's significant about this film, with you know, besides the excellent acting, and, and by the way, this movie uh, won 11 Academy Awards, which was outrageous at the time. <laughs> yes, uh, outrageous at the time, and actually wasn't duplicated until some years later. And I think you have a sinking feeling. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What movie that was? <laughs> Titanic in 1977. And then the other one um, was, and you probably know this, I didn't know this, The Lord of the Rings, the 2003 Return of the King was the other one. Yes. And as far as I know, those are the only three. Um, so th- th- getting back to the amazing amount of Academy Awards this movie won, it's well-deserved because you not only have excellent actors, you not only have, you know, obviously a legendary director, you know, William Wyler. Um, you have the uh, fantastic photography and stock uh, film that this thing was shot on. Um, but the other component is the music. And um, yeah. is that something you wanted to talk about? No, or- uh, uh, Rosa, uh, Mikos Rosa. Uh, yes. It, the, the impact of the music was so profound that they had to re-edit it. This is edited twice. Really? So what happened was they edit the film, and then they're just going to put the mu- music in, right? The simple mm-hmm. linear steps, right? We filmed the movie, now we're going to put the music. But the mu- the music was so impactful that they had to recut it to fit. And um, one of the most dominant re-editing was the um, confrontation of, again, with uh, the adult uh, Mesla being uh, standing on his desk and Judah approaching him, and there was high tension um, yes. They cut that because the music fits so well that you see the a lot of close-ups and stuff like that. So, yes, the music, the overture and intermission, the build-up, definitely yes. an, an aspect of this movie that really is grabs it and makes it a powerful. Sure, absolutely. A uh, full orchestra, um, you know, plays the music. It's it's uh, uh, on on the scale of you know something that uh, you know one of the classic composers would have done. Um, you know, just enormous um, uh, orchestrational music being played. And getting back to how they identify Jesus, uh, one of the things that I noticed too that was subtle but very impactful. Not only do you hear the carpentry. During that scene where where Judah is passing through the town yeah. and, and Jesus, but there's a certain tone when Jesus is on screen, and any time uh, Judah reflects on that moment throughout the, the the movie, and there are times when he does, he says like, you know, there was once a man that helped me, and I didn't know why he did, and when he reflects on 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 that moment, you hear that same tone throughout the movie, very subtle. And the one thing I would have to say. That amazes me about this movie. And here again, I come from the from the aspect of, 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 of the music and all that and the editing. When the ships are at sea, the battleships are at sea, they would pace the ro- the rowers by having somebody with two big hammers that would go boom, 
boom, and you know that would be the the slow pace, and, and then he would pick up the pace, hammer more quickly for, uh, you know, cruising speed and attacking speed and all yes. these other things. And uh, to me, I don't know how they did it, but to coordinate, you know, the shooting of this. And you had the 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 video portion that had to be, uh, you know, the movie portion, which had to be edited. And then the sound, the music would actually follow the tempo of the two hammers. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and with a full orchestra. And, you know, they didn't have a full orchestra on the set when this was being shot. So to coordinate all this, um, it had to be. Uh, quite the artistic undertaking, to say the least. Um, yeah, uh, definitely a lot of the uh, collaboration, obviously. There was over, yes. um, during this movie, I think they had over 300 sets. On staff for costuming was over 100 people. Just for costuming, wow. they had 100 people on sets. Um, production was over, built over a year. They built sets, and those. this actually was filmed. Both the 1925 movie and the 1959 movie were filmed in Rome. Um, so it was a monster production. Obviously, they had hundreds and hundreds of extras during yes. a lot of the shootings. Um, they did a little bit of trick of matte um, paintings. Um, and the nice little trick they did with the yes. um, the chariot races. There's no upper deck. What they did was actually film um, little dolls that popped up and down. So when you see it, it's the upper deck is all fake. It's just a shot of, of um, a galley with little dolls popping up and down, almost like they were like a Fuji, like a, yeah. like a, a foosball. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, one of the nice little movie magic little things. Um, I want to talk about the lead character a little bit. Sure. Uh, Charlton Hessen um, initially wasn't the first choice. Um, Gore Vidal talked about in his documentary. He was Gore Vidal was a script doctor for the movie. Um, the yes. script was written by Carl Tamberg. William Waller did not like the script. Um, he hired Gore Vidal to do some rewrites. Um, eventually, Gore uh, Vidal's rewrites weren't even good enough for him, and there was another rewrite. So I want to get into it. But um, the first pick was actually Paul Newman. And Gore Vidal was responsible for recruiting Paul Newman for the wow. lead. Um, Paul Newman actually turned it down because three years prior he did a biblical movie called The Silver Chalice, which bombed terribly. Oh, um, okay. And uh, Paul Newman's words is, I'm not fit for doing biblical movies. I don't look good in a dress. Hire somebody <laughs> that fits perfect with that. And, of course... At the same time, Silver Chalice came out, the Ten Commandments came out, and William yeah. Waller felt very fittingly, I think Charlton Heston can do it. Yeah. Um, well, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to add that, uh, you know, there was a certain amount of, um, I guess, political correctness, e even during the time, uh, a sensitivity to the secular movement, because um, in the rewrites, they actually backed away from some of the aspects. That I guess the novel is much more, I've never read it, but, but from my understanding is it, it is the religious part of this, the faith part of this is much more prominent. And uh, some of the rewrites um, included backing some of that down. And what's interesting, I'm not the biggest fan of, of Gore Vidal. Uh, he's obviously a super intelligent guy, or was. He passed away a number of years ago, but yes. um, uh, super intelligent guy. I believe he did something on Lincoln that, that was a, a landmark thing. Um, but um, I, he, he had some odd perspectives and, and, and odd ways to, to get to where he wanted to go. And one of the aspects that I that I've heard, and maybe you can corroborate this or not, I, this is kind of one of the quote unquote legends of the movie. Yeah, was that he kind of felt that the relationship between Judah Ben Hur and Masala should be played almost like jilted lovers. Yes, um, he did. Yes, he did. Okay, okay, okay. And uh, you know that that would be more impactful if you had that kind of resentment, uh, that that passionate resentment that you have when you feel that you've been, you know, unfairly wronged by your lover. Um, so that was um, uh, one of the legends of the movie that I heard. Another legend that maybe you know about, I don't know how true this is, uh, completely different subject though, but nonetheless, apparently uh, Charlton Heston had trained with these horses for a while. He, he was 
a, a very dedicated professional, and he went to Italy early, long before the principal filming and all this was going on and he learned how to interact with the horses and all these other things and as the day came around um he went to the stunt coordinator who i believe uh, there was the knut family i'm not sure which one there was yakima knut and then he had a, somebody else it was actually the double for for charlton heston I'm, un, I'm unclear on that um but he went to the to the stunt coordinator and he said uh hey by the way uh you know I'm going to do this and you know, everything's good, but we have this all set up. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be okay. Right. Cause he was a little nervous. <laughs> and, and the answer was, all I can tell you is that you win the race. <laughs> <That's all he laughs> said. So, um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that put him at ease or not. And I would have to imagine that, uh, even though they had this planned out very well and they had stunt doubles, the fact that something could go wrong and it did, there were a couple of crashes where some of the cameras and stuff were damaged. Yes, there and, was. And these, yep. And these cameras were, like I said, monstrous and horribly expensive. So uh, that was not a good thing. Um, but uh, you, you would think that uh, the principal photography would have been completed. You would think the insurance company would want you know, Charles Neston and Stephen Boyd, which who played uh, Masala, to have all their main stuff done before they you know, started getting dragged around uh, by a horse. So uh, it would have to be a little intimidating, I, I would have thought. Um, yes, to get on your point, uh, Gore Vidal on a BBC and um, said w- actually with William Wallace's approval that he wanted to build like uh, a lover's relationship between the two yeah. gentlemen. And that's why the introduction looks a little bit awkward, almost like uh, passionate. And yeah. um, then they have this javelin contest of so who can throw the javelin, which is kind of weird because when they throw the javelin and hits the the foundation, the, the supporting cross. beams, it looks yeah. like a cross. <laughs> Right? Yes, it does. Yeah, so it's kind of weird that they're actually throwing um, this, you know, macho, I'm still better than you contest, whatever. Um, so yes. Gore Vidal definitely emphasized that. He, he claimed he had approval. William Waller uh, says, I have no idea what he's talking about um, <laughs> before he passed away. Um, with the horse training and Tarleton Heston, yes, they, they spent a year specifically for the chariot race in some yeah. people. No, you think just animals, you just round up together and put them to, a, you know, round up four horses sure. and put them on a chariot. Doesn't necessarily work that get, work that way, especially with horses. So they had to spend, it almost took two months to, to match up the horses. Not only that, yes. they had to match up the right horses, they had to match the right color. So they had to find four horses that work together that are all white. They had to find four horses that were black to work together yeah. and all were proper. And then they found a horse that actually loved to run and race next to the pillars. So that's the inside horse. Okay. That's the first one they found because that was the crucial horse for yeah. Ben Hurst's chariot. Stabilized. The one who's mm-hmm. not, who's comfortable riding up against the, the middle in close proximity. And then they worked backwards. It's a whole mathematical problem that they had to work out finding all these horses. Yeah. Then there was a jump. They knew they had a jump scene. So they spent four months working with those horses to jump over the Harry, uh, the chariot that they were going to do in the movie, the Ben-Hur chariot jump right. forward. So they started with a little bale, bale hay at first, then they worked up to wood blocks, then they worked up to something sturdy to the point when it was finally time to film the movie, the four horses had no problem jumping over the horse. The problem is the stuntman wasn't really coordinated and he almost fell over. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yes, and Charlton Heston did go over the top uh, working with these horses. Uh, Some people said he was there from 6 a.m. to 6 at night for four months training the horses to the point that it was time filming. He can actually probably win the race outright by just being a a professional chariot racer. So, yes, he went above and beyond. Um, He went through the crucible with this. Obviously, they stuck him out in the waters and the depths and everything. Um, I don't necessarily, my personally regard Charlton Heston as a great actor. I think he's just a magnificent force whenever he's on camera. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what he projected. He was just a monstrous force, and he looks great in a dress. Yes, he does. <laughs> well, you know, it, the logistics of uh, that race were very complicated in terms of, um, say, for example, the camera that followed the horses. They had a motorized unit there. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you said, simple. direct a yeah. camera too. There's actually uh, their documentary making of Ben Hur shows the the scene where they wrecked the camera. The horse oh, really does two, it. 
Yeah, wow. the horses collide with the truck and they wreck the camera. But if you want to, I was going to bring it up. It's called Making of Ben-Hur. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, BBC ran it. You can actually, a lot of the information I'm, I'm presenting now I, comes from that source. But yeah, you can see yep. it. Well, one of the things here again, and, and you really, um, for example, a casual moviegoer may not really, you know, think about this that much. But uh, when they shot this race, not only was there obviously some some danger involved in having these cameras on motorized vehicles along the horses with either actors or stuntmen in the chariots, but you let's say go around once, and what happens? Well, there's light on one side, there's shadow on the other. So, you know, the camera filters and everything, you had to be conscious of that. And then the the motorized vehicles made tire marks. <laughs> you can't have tire marks where horses are. Yeah. You can <laughs> so, see tire marks. So they had to, uh, you know, brush down the um, – uh, the, the, the land, uh, the, the racetrack, uh, yeah, you know, after every take, they had to have somebody go out, smooth everything out, so on and so forth. And of course you can't smooth it out too much because as the horses are running the race, there are tracks that the horses are making. You just have to make sure they're not treads. And, uh, and then the other problem is obviously it takes a lot of time to do this. The sequence takes place in eight minutes or whatever it is. So what happens with, you know, you start early in the day, the shadows are going one direction. Later in the day, they're going another direction. Some days you shoot this over a period of days. Some days the sun shines brighter than other days. So they had a lot to deal with in terms of the lighting and the filters and everything else to make sure that this looked like it was actually being shot in real time, playing out for eight or nine minutes. So there was a lot to deal with there. Yeah. And the other aspect you talked about, the the track. Um, they brought in sand from the Mediterranean uh, beach of Italy, the Mediterranean Sea. Really? They trucked it, all of it, um, all of it, uh, layers upon layers. It took about two weeks to truck sand from the beach of Mediterranean Sea in Italy to there on set. So Jeez. It's still one of the magnificent things of, of just the scope of how, what they had to do for this film. Um, yeah. yeah, the other aspect I was going to talk about of, of the chariot race is, um, yeah, you have to do different settings shootings because you have to do continuity. Okay, we're shooting yes. here. We can't just shoot at the dark time because it would match up, match up or not particularly well. Um, yeah. yeah, there is no, nobody really died doing this movie um, obviously, anybody that was being trampled on horses, those are dummies, really careful, good dummies. Uh, the soldier that fell yeah. down is actually just a mannequin. <laughs> yeah. And actually, they spent a lot of time on that, too. Um, here again, getting back to the relevance uh, uh, of this movie in, in terms of today's cinematography, the uh, race not only looks extremely good, but it's actually quite violent. It's even gruesome by today's standards in, in some of the scenes. And uh, some of these dummies that you're talking about, if I remember correctly, some of them were spring loaded. So they looked like they were trying to get out of the way. Right, <laughs> yeah. Know? Um, and, uh, uh, there was that one scene where the, where the, where the guys hit head on with these horses and he, it looks like he tries to jump out of the way. Um, and that's something here again, I'm speculating on this. I'm speculating on this. That's something that they really had to work with the horses on because my experience is that horses generally don't, don't trample you. I mean, they're not the type of animal that will trample you simply because you're in the way. Unless they're avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, unless they're being aggressive and they're, you know, feel threatened or something. They generally, if they're running along a path and you're in the way, they won't just run over you. Um, so this was something that they really, you know, they didn't want to force the horses. Like you said, they started with little, uh, you know, bushels of hay and stuff uh, uh, to work them up to some of these scenes. So there and, and here again, for all the people out there that are sensitive to this, not only were no people harmed, but to my knowledge, there were no serious injuries to the horses or anything during the 1959 version. No, not uh, during production, no. Uh, I'm sorry? Not during production, no. Not during production. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you say during some of the practice scenes, some of them got hurt. Well, yeah, there, there's a there's a whole um, PB, PBS here in America did a whole documentary just on okay. the whole aspects of shooting the movie. And yes, uh, obviously, when you're recruiting horses, some of them okay. are not up to stable, not severe injuries, but enough that they had to look for replacements and all that stuff. Oh, so, sure. Yeah. So yeah. if you uh, want to find it, uh, PBS, uh, public uh, broadcast here in America, did a whole hour long presentation on just the shooting of the chariot race for this movie wow 
Okay. Yeah, that was that was kind of where I was going because with the 1925 version, you had horses getting killed and maimed and everything. Know. You know, so yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know yeah. if you know about this, Billy. Um, okay. Their chariot race scene. One of their production assistants on site was William Waller. Oh, okay. The director for the 1959. So he was on site for the 1925 movie. Really? No, that I did not know that. In fact, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I was watching the documentary. Actually, you will see him in the movie because during the huge crash, you can see him in the background as a, a, a producer assistant flanging down the other horses like, look out, look out. He's trying to tell them do not go that way. So he's oh, actually wow. in the 1925 movie. The other interesting point about the 1925 movie as an extra um, actress, Mira Loy is in the movie, too. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Just wow. a little tidbit, but <laughs> yeah, obviously, um, uh, William Wyler is a legend in terms of you know directors, actors. You kind of summarized Charlton Heston pretty well. Yep. Um, he was obviously in, in a couple of, I, I guess, sta- uh, staple movies throughout. I mean, how he went from that to Planet of the Apes <laughs> and Solson Green, <laughs> all those I have no idea. And then he did uh, all in the seventies. He did all those. Um, Oh, disaster movies like yes, yes. Like he was in the earthquake and the airport where the where the plane gets hit by a small plane. Yeah. Uh, so very, and it's unusual for for an actor to be that enormous for that many decades. Um, and I feel kind of that history has been kind of unfair to him. He got involved uh, in politics. And he got lampooned a lot for, you know, being an NRA spokesman and things like that. And the politics of that is your opinion. That's that's not where I'm going with this. But during the 1960s, though, he was very much a supporter of the civil rights movement and all that stuff. Um, so this was a, a well-rounded good guy. Um, oh, no, yeah. And- it, everybody talks about how he was just actually, especially in this movie, he was a real, you know, he wasn't isolated himself. He wasn't a jerk. He actually was a supporter. He actually regarded this as a team project. Yes. Willing to do anything. I mean, I, if you even watch a documentary on Planet of the Apes, how silly this looks. That he was like, we're making a movie. Come on, guys. And he was really supportive. Yeah. Um, everybody who worked with him has wonderful things to say about him. Yeah. Good guy. Uh, now, Stephen Boyd, I, I know that he was in um, uh, the Fantastic Adventure, I believe it was, where they miniaturize somebody and they go inside a, uh, a submarine and they go inside a human body. The Fantastic Voyage, yeah. Fantastic Voyage, that's Which, what it was. Then they remake it into inner space, yeah. Uh, yeah okay. Um, and uh, But unfortunately, I, my understanding is he died young. Yes, he did, yeah. Um, Stephen Boyd played Amesala. He beat out incredible amount of competition. Um, there's screen tests of Leslie Nielsen playing that character. Really? Um, wow. Um, Kirk Douglas was in regard, Victor Mature, of course. Um, so he beat out an incredible amount of people to play this. I think the secret, and nobody really talks about it, is his dominating voice that over-dominated yeah. Charlton Heston's voice. I yeah. think that sold the casting, that he was able to project this gravy, heavy voice and project this anger that really superseded even Charlton Heston's yeah. passion. And that yeah. casted, uh, casted him into this movie. The other aspect is, is he had blue eyes. And oh. they wanted a Roman, and all Romans would have brown eyes. So he had to wear these excruciating contact lenses throughout the movie. Oh, man. Especially especially in 1950s contact lenses. That's bad. <laughs> he hated it. He hated it. But uh, William Wyler said, you're a Roman. You have brown eyes. You're going to wear them. Wow. Oh, that would have been horrible. That would have drove me nuts, especially back then because they didn't have all the materials that they do today. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. today you can barely notice that they're in your eyes. But um, the other aspect I would talk about casting is um, Martha Scott plays Charlton Heston's mom in this movie. She also did in The Ten Commandments play Charlton Heston's mom. Oh, yes, yes. Now that you mention it, that's correct. Uh, I didn't realize that until you said it. <laughs> that is correct. Um I I, I got to say, though, here again from Styles, um, the direction style of the Ten Commandments looks antiquated today, to, by my estimation. It it a lot a little, of yeah. over-the-top gestures. Uh, you know, it, it was kind of like from the era when they were still kind of shooting movies as large stage plays. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and um, it, by today's standards, Ben-Hur still has a little bit of that, but it, it's much more natural sounding. And uh, like you said, the anger and everything that uh, Stephen uh, Boyd projects in that movie is very real and something you didn't see on screen a whole lot of during that time. 
Um, and I don't, I don't believe I'm giving anything away by saying that the bad guy dies in this movie. Uh, the, <laughs> no. the, and which is not pivotal to the, to the overall story. But I, I, the, the reason that I mention it is that I would have to say his death scene. Uh, when he, there's a moment there where he, and I won't say what he, he tells Judah one more thing to get in a dig to him just before he dies. <laughs> yes. And he does this because he has just been trampled. His character has just been trampled and he's dying. He's dying an agonizing death. And through this horrible pain, he still he, he, you can see on his face, he gets just a little bit of pleasure out of upsetting Judah. That's that was his his he still got pleasure by by expressing hate with his last breath. And then the way his his breath leaves his body where he just kind of goes and he just fades away i i thought was a brilliant death scene so yeah uh, go ahead yes overall for the story it fits very fiddling for the story because what yes. this story the whole tone of the theme is um forgiveness right yeah. um actually to prologue it, it it the whole for the theme for the movie is it's worthless to seek revenge it's worthless to seek hate, and that's where I think Jesus comes in, right? Yeah. And the um, the pivotal point of Mesala, the last thing he does is rage and anger, and that is supposed to be a marker for Judah that you don't have to concentrate your entire life to seek revenge. That's not the yeah. whole aspect. It's worthless. It's not. It's there's no value to this. And then you can see the point of peace with the Jesus character. That is the transformation. That's what the whole. I think the whole theme of the movie is is you're building up these entire hours to seek revenge where you don't really necessarily get it and then the last the, the last dying thing of your nemesis puts anger to you you got to put that aside yeah yes um the other aspect was mentioned because every time i watch this movie and i see mm-hmm. judah ben-hur and the chariot riding up to mesla i always think he's going to run him over i know it's like <laughs> But it's 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 a weird cut because it looks like he's going to. Okay. But okay. every time he sees, it, like, oh my god, he's going to run him over again. But no, it's it's it, he stops right next to him. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Every and, time uh, he sees, it, it's like yeah, yeah. Another um, bit of uh, uh, legend is that uh, Masala's helmet is is hanging there, and it looks like somebody from the audience comes up and and grabs it and 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 holds it up, you know, like the bad man's gone, you know, the the dead. But it, the, the the legend has it that was actually an extra who <laughs> found a, a piece <laughs> a piece of the uh, uh, you know the what's the right word for the extra stuff? He wanted um, a prop or yeah, a prop. That's the word I'm looking for. Yes, and they left it in. So, <laughs> um, before we go, 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 we got a couple minutes here. But I want to talk about the framing of the movie. There's certain aspects of framing and okay. that fits in with this movie. For instance, the introduction of the characters. It's very dark and very concentrated, very deep spacing. Even when it's close up to like the rooms of Jesus's room, very deep spacing it gives a scale of not 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 so much intimacy, though there is involved yeah. in the movie. But the whole scope of the movie is broad. That even though we're concentrating two characters, there's a huge world outside that. So I want to emphasize that throughout William Waller was concentrating this, that throughout this magnificent scope of a movie, and we're co- covering a variety of material, that we can actually focus a little bit just on a little aspect of detail. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Now, see, this is where you, you know a lot more than I do. <laughs> I'm pretending to know something about movies, <laughs> but you really do. <laughs> so I was going to ask you, when's the last time you seen it? Uh, about two years ago, I believe. Um, actually, my in-laws uh, knew that uh, I had uh, you know, an affection for the movie, so they bought me the, uh, the anniversary edition. Wonderful. And um, my wife and my stepdaughter, not this last Christmas, but the Christmas before, I believe, we watched it one evening because she was in from school and all this. And, and uh, yeah, so it's been about a year and a half maybe. I don't know how many times I've seen it over the years uh, coming and going. Uh, I'm a lot, I'm sure. Um, Roger Ebert defined a great movie as something that you see again and again but always looks new. Yes. And I would point Ben-Hur's definition of it. It's a great movie that you can see again and again, and it always will look new. Yes, absolutely. Very much so, for all the reasons that we discussed. Absolutely. There's always a certain aspect that you don't really pay attention to, 
or don't really know about and then you watch it again and it's it's there yeah it's a wonderful movie um take the journey i know it's three and a half hours long take the journey it's well worth the payoff yeah and even if you watch half and then the other half at a later time um (laughs) it's still yeah um although long movies are kind of coming back i've noticed that some of them are 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 starting to get long um but for a while there you couldn't get people to sit through a movie that's this long but uh it's it's actually it, it moves along very quickly um, you can see where the story and the conflicts are starting to develop uh, very early on. And then at that point, you're anxious to find out how it's going to get resolved and exactly how all these players are going to resolve their issues and their conflicts. And then also, too, in the back of your mind, you're wondering, where this Jesus guy, where, where's he fall into this? You know, and it isn't really made clear toward in, until the end of the movie. Uh, that's when the, the bells really come on. And uh, it's well worth the wait. You know, like uh, like I started to say at the beginning of this podcast, this is a story that started in the mind of a Civil War general in the 19th century. It has been put into play form. It has been shot several times as movies. There there was a recent one a couple years ago. What, what year was that? that, that uh, yes, 2016. Yeah, there was a 2016 version. Uh, but getting back to the 1959 version, you're talking about a century of a, an author developing something where it was it has been acted many times by different actors it was molded different times by different directors both in stage and screen so by the time that this uh, 1959 film comes along you know this has been a story that has been gone over and perfected and it's it's absolutely worth your time to check it out um, the last thing I want to mention is this is actually kind of regarded as the last tail end of the golden era of movie making. It's yeah. the last staple of filmmaking like Hollywood golden era, um, 59. Yeah. After this movie, there's a transition of what we call Hollywood, the new Hollywood, the new wave of renegade film directors in the 60s of exploration of what is filmmaking that started in France yeah. with the French new wave. But this is kind of the pinnacle the last kind of way of how they make it the studio says we're going to make this movie and then recruits rather than the director saying i'm making this movie producers are you willing to finance it so it's it's the old guard um and the nice thing about this is um it's presented um the cinematographer for this movie i can't remember his name it starts at uh but he was a cinematographer for the sting um, 1972 movie. Is Carlton Tunberg's? Does that sound right? Yeah, I think so. The cinematographer okay. for Ben Hur is also the cinematographer for The Sting. The Sting. Oh, the screenplay. I'm sorry. I, I misspoke. Carl Tunberg was the screenplay writer. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, okay. So the cinematographer for the Ben Hur also did The Sting. And The Sting is pretty much the last Hollywood kind of movie in one best yeah. picture but a sandwich between the two godfathers movies and that is really the definition of old hollywood nostalgia and how movies were made and that's kind of like the last pitiful point and it's a kind of a, a linkage to old hollywood and this movie yeah. presents it yeah, um, definitely uh, the epic side. And a lot of that had to do with the economics of show business at that time, too, because like you said, uh, the the feeling of the studios uh, during the 1950s and the early part of the 1960s was since so many people have TVs, yep. let, let's give them an experience that they can't have in their living room. So um, that's kind of where, um, you know, the angle of this came and uh, big screen wide angles, anamorphic lenses, all those things. And uh, yeah, I like I said, a great movie. Um, enjoy it. That would be my that would be my advice. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Billy, for coming on and talking about this movie. Oh well thanks for having me. Like I said, I tried to keep up with you. I actually did a little research on this or made a few notes because I, I'm not one of these people that fill my time by going to movies, you know, like, oh, wow, I have got some spare time. I'm going to go find a movie to watch. That's not me. I'm usually the other way around. You know, something grabs my attention, I'll, then I'll go see it. And I'm all over the place. I mean, you know, I can uh, – Forrest Gump is one of my favorites. Uh, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, but you know what? I can enjoy John Wick. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, uh, so you just never know what's going to grab my attention. I do enjoy an artistic movie, uh, one that's got – 
great writing behind it, great acting, great directing. Um, I do, on occasion, something will come along and it just really grabs me. And this is one of them. Uh, I would have to put this in in one of my top 10 lists. Uh, So do check it out. All right. Thank you again, Billy. Um, It's not over to the guest says it's over. Okay. Do you do, should I say it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I have been talking as a guest with Nick Palatichuk on the St. Paul Filmcast. My name is Billy Dees. Thank you very much for checking out our podcast today. Until the next time, keep watching great movies. And it's over? It's over. <laughs> all right. The all fat right. lady has sung. Yeah. <laughs>